a sibling because in this instance, the siblings literally wanted to kill him. You know what I'm saying? There's a bit of wisdom if you're like that. So what happens is that they go down to Egypt and um, they're, they're, they're caught in a slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years. They are crying out to God, God, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And what happens is their greatest moment of redemption, which is um, called the Exodus, happens. Remember that? Ten Commandments, um, Prince of Egypt, all those movies. You know, the, you guys know that. So that happens. They come out. Joshua takes over from... Um, from Moses, and then they go through this cycle where they, God's people seem to have this habit of doing the right thing, then doing the wrong thing. God does something, then they do the right thing, do the wrong thing, and it's called the Judges cycle. And and then we have books of the Judges that actually happen over here, and then we move from the Judges to the Kings, which happens here. And after the Kings, um, Israel, they kind of have a civil war, and there is a splitting of the kingdoms. The Northern Kingdom is Israel. The bottom kingdom is Judah. Right? Northern Kingdom, very very bad kings, very naughty kings. Okay, God gets a little bit sick and tired of them and actually um, judges them. So Assyria comes and actually cuts them off. And this is about 722 BC. The video is a lot more better than me doing this. The bottom kingdom has a bit of a mixture of kings. Okay, some good kings, some bad kings. But at the end of it, um, God hands the um, bottom king, uh, bottom kingdom, Judah, over to Babylon. Remember Daniel and Babylon and all that. So that happens. And after this. Israel go into their worst moment of their history. They go into exile, into Babylon. After enduring this, God actually gives a promise that he's going to redeem them. Okay. After exile is after this, and there's like a moment of absolute silence from God until we come to where we're going to get to today, Mark, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus comes. We move into the epistles and we end with the book of Revelation, and it ends where we're actually going to be in the presence of God forever. Do you understand the storyline? So all of our 66 books actually fits there. And if you want to understand the, the, the books, especially some of those old prophetic um, books, have you ever read some of those books and said, I have no idea what you're talking about right now? Now, I'm told in church this is supposed to be relevant to me. I have no idea. Well, if you can actually place all of those books somewhere in the time frame, it actually helps us make sense. But we need to know that we are story people. Humans are story people. And we are engrafted into a grand story. And if we do not know the story which we're engrafted to, then we don't have meaning. We don't have purpose. In fact, a lot of the things that we see in this world today is particularly because people do not understand that they are actually part of a grander story. Does that make sense? All right. So we're going to go into this. So um, we'll work on the computer stuff and get that all sorted. All right. But the podcast, whoever's doing that can start from now. Are you guys ready to go? We're going to be in Mark's Gospel, and we're going to start from verse 1, so get your Bibles. Well, on Wednesday night, Andrea and I, my wife, who I hope you'll actually get to meet at some stage, um, she's currently serving, um, we um, used something that we haven't used in a very long time. We used an alarm, all right? And um, because like for many, many um, modern-day progressive techno-savvy parents, um, our normal alarm clock is actually our young children. We never sleep in. Never sleep in. Um, our young children, um, Jackson and Kayla, they went off um, to nannies for the night. Um, but we needed to wake up for work the next day. So we actually had to set an alarm, which we hardly ever do. Because um, our children are far more reliable than any piece of technology. 
as the alarm went off on Thursday morning, I actually woke up and there was like this shrill, that, and not a comfortable shrill, this shrill that went through me because I was immediately reminded of the time when I was a young adult and I had to wake up at 4 a.m. every single morning for work. And I had this one alarm that made this sound that even to today, if I hear anything like it, it just goes, oh, anyone else got those things? It kind of went, any time I hear that, it was like, oh, oh, it doesn't matter what it is. What I had to do, four o'clock in the morning, I had to make myself jump out of bed. I ran to the bathroom and I splashed my face with water because I didn't want to go back to sleep. Because you know, if you actually fall back to sleep at four in the morning, it's all over. <laughs> I reckon I'll probably wake up at midday, you know, that's what young adults kind of do, do you? anyway. Um, but that's what I had to do to make sure I woke up. I set my alarm clock to go off at 4am, and when 4am fully came, went burp, 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 and the alarm clock erupted to wake me up. This is precisely what Mark is doing in his account of Jesus. He is shouting to us, wake up. Listen to how um, N.T. Wright describes the beginning of Mark's gospel. I find it really amazing. This is what he says. He says this, You were sound asleep and dreaming when suddenly the door bursts open and a bright light shines full in your face. A voice breaking into your dream world shouts, Wake up! Get up! You'll be late! And without more ado, the speaker splashes your face with cold water to make the point, Time to stop dreaming, to, time to stop dreaming and face the most important day of your life. Welcome to the announcement of Jesus the King according to Mark. That's what we're going to be journeying in. And we're going to take our time. You might think, Dave, you've lost your mind in the first couple of weeks because we are literally going to take our time. We are going to be listening to, we are going to be observing, and we are going to be responding to the single most important person who has ever walked on the face of this earth. And if you're in this place, and we all get to this place where you've actually come a little bit comfortable or a little bit familiar with Jesus, can I just let you know from the front end, that is probably the most dangerous place for you to be. And it is my hope and my prayer that as we go through this, as we journey through this, as we see Jesus, He is going to shake us to our core. He is going to provoke us. He is going to challenge us. And we are going to be so enthralled with who He is. This is going to be a phenomenal journey for us. Every caricature that we've picked up along the way with our tradition. You know, tradition gives us a lot of caricatures. A lot. But you know what? I know that our beautiful Lord, He's going to come in His loving way and it's absolutely smash every single character we've picked up along the way. And let me tell you, by the end of this and through this, we're going to be falling more and more in love with Jesus. And my heart for us, anyone actually, is that we are continually falling more in love with Jesus. Anyone else want to fall more in love with Jesus? Do you want to see Him in a fresh way? I want to see him in a fresh way. As you read through the Gospels, you notice that Jesus did a lot of strange things, didn't he? He said a lot of strange things. I mean, we say Jesus, meek and mild, but he go into situations and settings and you'd be thinking to yourself, Jesus, are you actually trying to pick a fight right now? Um, the answer is, yeah, he was. He's actually trying to disturb a lot of things. And the way that he spoke and the way that he acted actually made everyone around ask the question, who does Jesus think he is? All right? Who does Jesus think he is? And what Mark is doing, what the Gospels are doing, they're putting this question out, who does Jesus think he is? And then they're turning it on you and me and saying, okay, now how do you, who do you say he is? 
And it is actually going to be this daily thing for us. Every single morning, I pray that the beautiful Holy Spirit will corner all of us into a corner and actually provoke us and ask us that question, who do you say Jesus is? That is the journey we are going on, and it is going to be phenomenal. So imagine after 400 years of slumber, God's ordained alarm clock sounds. Beep, beep, beep. In a world where the heavens seem to have been shut and God's tongue seems to have caught, been caught, there is this piercing alarm sound that beckons everyone's attention. This is what the alarm clock sounded like. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 7. I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screen, but just listen. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you and he will prepare your way. Here's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and preached that people should be baptized to show that they have turned to God and received forgiveness for their sins. All of Judea, including the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater if that I'm not worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I love my Kindle. I love it. One of the reasons why I love my Kindle is because I can actually download a heap of samples, and I don't have to pay anything for it. That's why I love it. What I've discovered is that the very first sentence of a piece of material is really, really important. It's really important. Now, I read the first part of my sample, and I determine right there, am I going to like sort of continue reading this? Am I actually going to invest into it to buy it? First sentences are really important. They're important now. They were really, really important in ancient days for this simple reason. John Mark, who we believe is the writer of this, he was an associate with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. In fact, he is writing down the eyewitness account of Peter. Okay, He was writing this on a scroll. You can imagine it's kind of difficult to write a table of contents on a scroll, right? No table of contents. So what ancient writers did, they needed the very first sentence of their writing to be so significant and so important. In fact, the very first sentence told the reader the entire content for the entire work. Does that make sense? Didn't have a th- so it was really, really important. Important now, even more important then. And what we find in the very first sentence of the Gospel of Mark, which is Mark chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, that's the first sentence. And that's all we're going to focus on today. It is the sentence that lets us know everything about what you're going to actually read in the remainder of the Gospel. Now, I wish I knew this years ago, because I can't tell you how many times I've just skipped over the first three sentences. Oh, whatever. And I have missed, I've skipped over the single most important sentence or, or, or part, the prologue of the entire book. And John Mark, he begins his sentence by saying this. Mark 1, verse 1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Other renderings will say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this seems like a pretty simple question, but what exactly is a gospel? What's the gospel? 
It sounds like an easy question, but you'd be surprised. I mean, I remember I was lecturing in Bible college once I asked that question, and um, uh, it was difficult to get an answer out. Um, Many people would accept the following. So you know what? God loves you, has a great plan for your life. Sin has touched every part of creation and caused all of us to rebel from God, running willingly into an eternity without Him. But Jesus came and He gave His life to save you and me if we accept His sacrifice on the cross. And you know what? We get to go to heaven and be with Him until the new heavens and new earth are joined together where we'll be in His presence forever. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? It may surprise you to know that for um, the first century audience, for people like the Apostle Paul, Peter, in fact, Jesus... That was not their understanding of what a gospel was. Now, don't get me wrong, that's all true, but that is an implication of the gospel. It's an implication. The danger also is that with that kind of thing, taken to its nth degree, that actually um, is really good for altar calls and people making decisions. But we have a lot of data right now, especially in all the big crusades of the 60s and all that. There's a really small amount of people who actually continue their life with Jesus after coming forward or running forward and all that. There actually needs to be a different approach to what we actually bring to people this day and age. A gospel is quite literally an announcement, an announcement of good news. At the end of his life, Paul wrote to his um, young um, student of faith, his name was Timothy, and possibly in the most succinct place in our Bible, he actually articulates what the gospel is. 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. And he says this, Never forget that Jesus Christ was a man born into King David's family. He was raised from the dead. This is the gospel I preach. The good news, the gospel, is an announcement of the life of Jesus. That he was born that he was born into the Davidic line. That's really significant. We'll see that as we journey on. That he lived, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended, he will return. This is the gospel I preach. So to understand the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, to tell people of the good news, we need to tell people of the life of Jesus. That makes sense, doesn't it? We get that? But Mark, as he's writing this, he doesn't just say, this is the good news of Jesus. He says, this is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ. And um, I don't go around today using that word Messiah or Christ, you know, in Australia. We don't do that, you know. We don't do that. That, that. that word Messiah or Christ, that's a vocational word. It told people what to expect, what this person was going to do, you know. It would be like uh, sort of saying, you know what, Tim the youth pastor, or if there's like uh, um, Craig the barista, or, or something like that, or Dave the pastor. It lets you know. That word Messiah or Christ literally means king. It let everyone know what he was going to do. It described what Jesus was going to do, or at very least, what people expected him to do. So in our language, we would paraphrase Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is the great announcement about Jesus, the King. Okay? Which begs two questions, which this first sentence really unpacks for us. Are you guys okay so far? I mean, I'm just treating you guys like I'm just like, I'm just going for it, you know what I'm saying? This is what I love to do. I love to teach people the Bible. <laughs> Two questions. Who is this king? And what exactly will this king do? They are two very important questions. For me, someone who professes allegiance to Jesus, really important for me to know who is this king and what exactly can I expect this king to do? And what John Mark does is that in his very first sentence, he answers both of these questions. And in order for us to get some understanding, I'm going to use my beautiful 
Bible model, which I love. So my dad, father-in-law must really love me. He did that. Um, but we're going to actually use that to actually try and see the picture of what's happening and, and what Jesus is doing in light of um, Israel's story. So I'm going to read the first sentence. I'm going to get a run of it, and then we're going to um, unpack it a bit. Mark 1, verse 1 to 3, just to let you know for these messages, make sure you listen to the podcast because you will not catch everything here. And that's why we have technology like podcasts so you can actually go back. And I will even encourage you, you don't necessarily have to write notes today, go back and listen to the podcast and actually do it from there. You know what I'm saying? Because it's going to be good, but it's amazing what you'll find in three verses. Trust me. This is the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. Look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Now, for the original hearers, when they heard this first sentence, it would have just instinctively brought so many memories and so much information to them. But for us, we got a lot of work to do because I was born in Perth. I'm like an Anglo-Indian Perth-born Sangrope, you know what I'm saying? Like when I read that, it's like that means absolutely nutter to me. <laughs> absolutely nutter. So we've got a bit of work to do. What we need to recognize is that in this first sentence, Mark uses two quotations, one from Isaiah and one from Malachi. So first Mark, we're actually looking at Mark. Mark belongs on the time frame over here. Okay, so keep that in mind. This is what we're looking at, Mark over here. And he uses two quotations. The first one is from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, this is the quotation. He says, this is what Malachi 3 verse 1 says. Look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you look for so eagerly is surely coming, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So Malachi, let's see if I can find Malachi. I've got Malachi here. And um, Malachi fits on the Bible, the, the Bible time frame after the exile. Now remember, the exile, this is their moment of deepest, the darkest hour. Okay, darkest hour. They are terrorized, they are brutalized, they are tormented. But what Malachi does, even in that verse, he is alluding to the exodus which happens over here. See that? Malachi, writing here, he's alluding back to this exodus. And as you read through the Bible, you will come to see from this week on that this exodus language appears a lot, Old Testament and a lot in the New Testament as well. So that's what happens. The other um, quotation comes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 40 verse 3. In fact, it says, listen, I hear the voice of someone shouting, make a highway for the Lord through the wilderness, make a straight, smooth road through the desert for our God. Let's see if I can find that. Oh, here we go. Isaiah. Here we go. Now, Isaiah is a really interesting book because Isaiah is kind of, um, written before exile. There's parts of Isaiah that are written during exile. And there are parts of Isaiah that actually point to post-exile. So Isaiah could fit there. But this particular verse, okay, is spoken smack bang in 
exile. Don't worry, I'll bring it all together in a moment. So to make sense of Mark is saying, he is pointing back to some significant moments. In particular, he's, speak, he's um, speaking back to Malachi, who's actually speaking back to Exodus. Now, Exodus is a really significant moment in Israel's scripture, okay? It is the highlight, it is the key moment of Israel's redemptive history. It's the moment in Exodus that God delivered Israel from their slavery by the mighty deeds of God. You will actually read as we go through Mark that Jesus himself does mighty deeds as well. Though Jesus' mighty deeds are very different to the mighty deeds in Exodus, and there's a reason for that. In Exodus, God delivers um, Israel by a man. What was his name? His name was? There's two of you. His name was? I'm making sure you're awake. His name was Moses, right? Something significant about Moses. It was in the Exodus um, during that time that they were given the law. These vows of um, relationship after being delivered. They were given the law. We understand that. They were given the law. It was in this place where there was, um, after the law, these people of God actually became a nation. So the people of Israel came out of Egypt. They were given the law. And by giving the law, they were no longer the people of Israel. They became the nation of Israel. So God kind of calls them out. All right. Interesting to see what Jesus does. He calls people out as well. But he calls 12 out. I wonder what he's doing there. If God calls out a nation and then Jesus calls out 12, I wonder what Jesus is doing there. Well, we'll discover that later on if that interests you. It's a moment where the presence of God was continually with them. Do you remember the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, the tabernacle? God's presence is with them. In fact, as you read and you come to the end of, um, of Exodus, you actually see the end is God's presence is with his people. It seems that God is continually over and over again wanting to be with his people, wanting to commune with his people, just wanting to hang with his people. At the end of Revelation, God again is with his people. That's a really significant thing. Now, the greatest expression of this exodus actually happens in a moment in Solomon's temple. I don't know if you remember the story, but David wanted to build a temple to God. And um, Nathan, the prophet, said, okay, go and do it. But then God said to Nathan, uh-uh, David's not doing it. David's a man of war. And then Nathan comes back and says, no, you can't do it. You're, you're a man of war. So what David does, he prepares the material for Solomon to build a temple. You remember that in the story? Builds a temple. And what happens at the building of that temple, something so significant happens. It's actually recorded for us in 2 Chronicles 7. When Solomon finished praying, after he built the temple, dedicated the temple, fire flashed down from heaven and burnt up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Could you imagine that? Like right now, if God just came out, boom, we'd all be flat on the ground. It's like, oh. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down to the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good, He is faithful, His love endures forever. That's in Second Chronicles, and Second Chronicles fits over here in the time of the kings. And what is argued in this whole Exodus time, that there is actually the absolute pinnacle moment of this Exodus moment, which happens in 1 Kings, which says this, 1 Kings 4, and the kings of every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. You may ask, why is this the, most, the pinnacle moment of the Exodus? Well, it's the pinnacle moment because in Deuteronomy, which happens here, 
God gave his people the law the second time. And this is what he said to his people. If you obey this, rulers from nations will come to listen to you for your wisdom. It's the same promise that God gives Abraham. He says, I'm calling you to be a father of many nations through which the nations will be blessed. The whole agenda the entire time that, that God would call a group of people, and in this particular instance right now in 2020, that God would call Kalamanda Church of Christ through which all the nations would be blessed. That is why this is seen as the pinnacle. Because that seems like, okay, God has fulfilled his promise. But look at this time frame, okay? So from here... This seems to be amazing. Go here. I mean, granted, there's a bit of time. But if this is the pinnacle, like what happens after the pinnacle? All right. So, so after this moment where everything seems to be coming together, Israel decided to have a civil war, right? Humans being humans, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you know, like siblings, they just love to fight. So they have this civil war and, and Israel is broken into two kingdoms. Israel is up the top, all right? And as I said before, they have all these very, very bad kings, very, very naughty kings, very, very bad. Very, very bad. And God gets so sick and tired of them, he uses um, Assyria to actually come and take them out. So that's 722 BC. The bottom kingdom is Judah. This is really important for us to know, okay? This is where the line of David comes, Judah. This is where Bethlehem is, Judah. Now, they have some good and some bad kings, but eventually they do the same thing, and God hands them over to Babylon, and they are sent into exile. All right? They're sent into exile. And you've got to imagine in exile, this is not the place where they ever thought they would be. It's in the time of exile I don't even know if we could fully articulate how bad it is. Yesterday, Andrew and I took the kids to Maritime Museum in Fremantle, and they've got um, the Roman Empire um, exhibit at the moment. And as I was walking through that, you could actually get a sense of how brutal um, these empires were um, and how violent they were. So I don't know if we could, in the safety of little Australia, if we could ever really understand the terror that they were going through, actually being taken from the land into Babylon where they are being dominated and brutalized by another empire that really doesn't care about them. But it is in the moment of this exile, Israel's darkest hour, that Israel's greatest prophet stands up and starts to speak. His name is Isaiah. So while they're in exile, Israel draws God's people's attention, Israel's attention back to the most significant redemptive moment in their history. While they're here, Isaiah stands up and points them back to the Exodus, okay? This is what he does. The Exodus was where Israel was in slavery. It's the place where they had an overlord. It's a place where God heard their cry. It's a place where God raised up a servant to deliver them. It's a place where God enacted mighty deeds to deliver them. It's the place where God gave them the law, these vows of this relationship. It's the place where God reconstituted them into a nation. It's a place where God's presence was constantly with them and culminating in God's presence coming and filling the temple. And it's the place where nations came and were blessed through them. Isaiah brings this up to Israel in exile. And you must be thinking, like, that's kind of mean, isn't it? Wouldn't you think that? 
It's like you got like someone and they're down and they're beaten up, they're bloodied up, and you say, you know what, I'm going to give you another kick in the gut. You, you kind of think that. Like, imagine what they were going through when Isaiah steps up and starts talking about this stuff. We've got some instances like Psalm 137 verse 1 to 4. Just listen to the lament of what they're going through. This is what they write. This is, this is what they sing. They say, beside the rivers of Babylon, there we are, Babylon, we sat and wept. As we thought of Jerusalem, we put away our harps, hanging them on branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs from Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we are in a pagan land? Can you sort of feel the depths of their despair? And in those depths of despair, Isaiah stands up. And he recalls God's mighty deliverance through the Exodus. But he doesn't do it to mock Israel. He, he, he doesn't do it to put them down. He is making a prophetic announcement. He is saying, God is going to do it again. He's going to do it again. In fact, whatever he did in this old Exodus, he's going to do a new Exodus, which is going to completely overshadow this old Exodus. What Isaiah says, God is going to come and he's actually going to deal with Adam's sin, the sin of the first, the first, um, the first um, father. You know what I'm saying? He's going to do that. So, so you can imagine that. They would have a bit of hope, wouldn't they? They'd have a bit of hope. What happens, they're in Babylon, and then the Persians come. And the, po the Persians have a different political agenda to the Babylons. So while the Babylons made everyone leave their homeland, the Persians, they have a different policy. And they allow Israel to go back home, all right? So Persia comes, takes care of Babylon. Babylon's out of the scene. Persians say, you can go back. So after that, the Persians come, Israel comes back home. They're back home. So uh, try to think of yourself like Israel, okay? So you heard this from your greatest prophet Isaiah, that God's going to do it again. There's going to be a new exodus. Everything we know of the past exodus, which was amazing, by the way, is going to completely overshadow that, culminates in the temple, the fire of God, the presence of God coming in the temple, culminates with all the nations coming to you, and you think, okay, this new exodus is going to surpass that exodus. Whoa, this is going to be great, right? You'll be thinking that. So they come back home, and you can imagine, you can imagine their surprise. No, 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 no. You can imagine their bitter, bitter disappointment. That when after they return home after exile, they're not delivered by one of their own, they're delivered by a pagan king, his name is Cyrus. They didn't like that. They return to their city, their city's in ruins. They fully expect God to return to his temple and there's nothing. They've returned home, but they're still in exile. God's presence hasn't returned. Israel is still harassed and dominated by other nations. Israel in this moment are even starting to behave like other nations. In fact, if you read the book of Malachi, Malachi is a response to Israel who are pointing their finger at God. In Malachi, God's people are saying to him, you are weak. You promise this and you cannot deliver. You're weak. You're useless. And the biggest slap in the face that God's people actually say to him, you are unfaithful to your covenant. And Malachi stands up and says, you better be careful because you want God to come back. But you need to know right now, if God wants to come back right now, he would not be dealing with the pagan nations. He'd be dealing with you, Israel. It's a harsh, harsh prophetic utterance. Right? Israel. 
God hasn't returned to his temple. His presence is absent. Israel is waiting for the God to return to the temple. They are repeating for a repeat of 2 Chronicles 7 verse 1. And Israel's scriptures cease right here in the most unsatisfying, unsatisfactory of ways. God's promise, unfulfilled. God's presence is absent and God's silence is deafening. And then after 400 years, have you picked up the story so far? After 400 years, God's alarm clock starts to ring again. Beep, beep, beep. Wake up. This is the announcement. The announcement is this. God has not forgotten his promise of the new exodus. This new exodus, which overshadows the old exodus, it is now in play. This is the great announcement about Jesus the King. And you might be thinking, okay, so Jesus, the king, the king is going to be like Moses because this new exodus is, is kind of going to be similar but better than the old exodus. Like, that's going to be, it's going to be a bit, bit like Moses, but in the most startling of maneuvers, this promised, expected, rightful king is someone no one expected. And it's written in those quotes that Mark actually outlines for us. Let's break it down again. Malachi 3, we already looked at it. Look, I'm sending my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord, you need to understand, in the Old Testament, when they put Lord, that actually is Yahweh. Okay? That's Yahweh. Using the word, they feared God too much to put Yahweh. That is Yahweh. Then Yahweh, who you're seeking, will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you look for so eagerly is surely coming says the Lord of heavens. Isaiah 40 verse 3. Listen, I hear a voice of someone shouting, make a highway for the Lord. No, make a highway for Yahweh through the wilderness. Make a straight, smooth road for the desert of our God. This gospel, this good news, this announcement of Jesus the King is more profoundly the announcement of God himself. You know, when you have people come up to your door with the ties and little... Badges, our very first gospel in the very first line debunks the whole lot. Now you know. I don't know about you, but they stopped coming to my house. Have they stopped coming to your house? And don't let them open up their Bible. You open up your Bible. All right? We have too many people perverting our Jesus and our Bible. We need to know the story as followers of Jesus Christ. We have hedged our eternity on this. It makes no sense that we do not know the story. You know what I'm saying? If our entire, anyway. So John Mark, having no table of contents, he uses his opening sentence to make the most exciting, most exhilarating, most threatening, most unexpected declaration that has ever been heard. He is saying, wake up! In the words of Tom Wright, wake up! This is the announcement of how God became king. Sorry, that's just awesome. Is it any wonder that the same Isaiah, he writes, forget about the former things. Do not dwell on the past. What's he talking about? He's talking about this, the old Exodus. We use scripture and we say, we use this all the time, but what is Isaiah talking about? He says, forget about this, Exodus. Because there's going to be a new exodus. See, I'm doing a new thing. 
Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness. This is Exodus language and streams in the wasteland. This is the announcement. This is the wake-up call. This is who Mark declares Jesus to be in his very first sentence. And his first sentence is so provocative. He is pushing and he is prodding and he is poking you and he is pushing me. And he's saying, this is who I believe him to be. How about you? Who do you believe him to be? When I was a young adult, leading youth ministry and all that, we used to sing these songs. And one of the songs was, you know, Jesus, you were my best friend. We used to sing songs like that. Can I just let you know that if Jesus is just your best friend, your entire life is going to be shaped around that. If he's just your best friend, your whole life is going to be lived in response to that. But if your answer and if my answer is the same as Mark's declaration in that very first sentence, that changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? Changes everything. And you can look into the world. I mean, right at the moment, the geopolitics of our world today, oh my goodness, it's crazy. You look at the leaders of this world, you look at the kings of this world, and you think, gee, you're doing a great job, aren't you? But even go back and look at our own lineage. Look at the kings in our own lineage. You know what? Our greatest one, like greatest king, like King David. I mean, gee, how many stuff-ups did he do? You just see like these kings and these rulers just making mistakes over and over again. And you can see that all of this is stretching and straining to the one rightful king of the world. And what is he doing as his vocation as king? He is fulfilling what has been promised. Hey, church, he's fulfilling it right now, by the way. Right now. That means that you and I are invited into something that completely overshadows this. That's got to excite you. That's got to, that's got to be pretty exciting, isn't it? I'm pretty excited about that. Unbelievable. Whatever you saw and experienced in the Exodus is nothing compared to what he is currently doing right now. Currently. Currently doing right now. Seriously, if you come into this season and you've got pettiness, drop it. Seriously, I've got to tell you, you're pretty blessed because at the moment I'm leading two churches, so I actually literally do not have time to deal with pettiness. I don't have time to deal with church politics. Not at New Spring, not here. And understand that you can actually allow that stuff to fall to the ground. Sure, you're part of church. Guess what? That's family. In family, you're going to be, have hurts. You're going to have disappointment. That is part and parcel of being part of a family. If you do not want to have hurts and disappointments, do not be part of a family. And you're not going to do too well. But if you're going to be part of the family, understand we need to extend grace and forgiveness and love to each other because people be people and people are crazy. Right? But you just need to know up front, haven't got the time. Because there is an invitation that is afforded to me and an invitation that is afforded to you that we can allow our pettiness to fall to the ground because what Jesus is currently doing right now, this brand new exodus, new creation, the kingdom of God breaking in, breaking forth into this world. He is inviting his beautiful sons and daughters and saying, come on, let's change the world. What would you rather do? Hold on to your pettiness? Or change the world. Come on. Now, I understand I stepped on some people's toes just then. But you just need to know I meant to. 
What a startling declaration in three verses. You know, this is the great announcement of Jesus the King. Okay, number one, who is he? He's Yahweh himself. Wow. That's crazy. This is Yahweh. This is Yahweh. Like, like, even, in, like even in the stories, there's so many things. You remember like, the most divine moment, all theologians agree with this. Remember Jesus walking on water? You know, and the disciples in the boat? Jesus knows where he's going. Just say there's a boat there and Jesus is walking and he walks past the boat. Why in the world would he walk past the boat if he knows, wait a minute, Moses said, God, show me your glory. And, God, and Yahweh said, okay, I'm going to walk past you. You're going to see my behind. Wait a minute. Is Jesus the same Yahweh? Are you kidding me right now? What does Jesus do? Why does he call 12? Is he called, wait a minute, I, God, 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 part of the Exodus, God calls a nation. Jesus, are you calling a brand new Israel? This book's going to mess with so much of your stuff. And you're going to love it. You're going to love The Old Testament prophets spoke of a remnant over again. Remnant, remnant, remnant. No one expected the remnant would be 12, of which we are engrafted into as the new Israel. Because you read through the book of Isaiah, it's actually the suffering servant who is the true Israel. And his name is Jesus. There is so much beautiful theology for us to know and engraft into our life. But this is what he says. He is Yahweh himself. What is he doing? He is breaking forth this brand new exodus. New creation breaking on the scene. Completely changing the world. It, it changes our paradigm. Some people may look at this world and say it's getting darker and darker and darker. But we as followers of Jesus Christ say, yeah, you're not seeing right because this world is getting brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. And he will come back again. Praise God. And when he comes back again, I'm going to be rejoicing. I'm going to be praising him. You see, if he's my king, I bow my knee, don't I? If he's my friend, I might like sort of say, if he's my king, I bow my knee. And if he's my king, I surrender everything. 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 We can have the band come up, I'm about done. If he's my king, I throw down every single crown that I have picked up along the way. If he's my king. And this is what John Mark is doing in his very first sentence. And you can even see in that first sentence, who is Jesus? He is Yahweh. What he is doing? New Exodus. As we read the rest of it, and you can go home and read the rest of Mark, you will see that that is exactly what he is doing. Isn't it amazing that in, a very, in, in, three, in like three verses, one sentence, you can get the entire gospel in that? That's crazy, right? These guys are very smart when they put their documents together. And then you can go on and you can read the other Gospels and you'll see the same. And you'll read Paul's writing and the Pauline epistles and you'll see the same. Now that you know, you're going to see this new Exodus language throughout all of it. This is the declaration of Mark. This is the great announcement of Jesus, the King, who is no other than Yahweh himself. And he's fulfilling the promise that was delayed. For 400 years, it was delayed. It wasn't delayed because of God's fault. No, it was delayed because of the disobedience of God's people. But now, that promise is in play. And in the year 2020, you, my beautiful, beautiful friends, you and I are invited to see it break in. 
this is a glorious life to be a follower of Jesus. Do you learn something today? Yeah. Young preachers, this church is very blessed. Get to know the story. Your job as youth pastor, somehow by the grace of God, is to get teenagers to know the story. If we do not know the story, we will not discover meaning and purpose in our life. We need a transcendent story. That's good. Let me pray for you and we're going to finish with worship. We're going to respond to God's word because he's so good to us. Father, we thank you for Holy Scripture. I thank you for your goodness and your kindness. We're reminded this day of your faithfulness. That even in silence, you're still working. And any silence that we've ever experienced from you is a lot shorter than 400 years. But we know that your silence does not mean that you're absent, but you are near and you're working. I speak into 2020 and I open brand new doors in Jesus' name. 2019 was a hard, tough, grinding year for so many people. But this year, year will be different, says God. Faithfulness is the key that opens doors. And as you've remained faithful in the previous years, this day there will be doors that open. And there will be refreshment that comes. And there will be enlightenment that comes. It will be a great year for you. We bless you this day. I pray for this beautiful church that you make her strong. That she stands. And she takes her place in this city and in this nation. We lift up the journey before you as we begin searching for a new shepherd. We understand and we recognize that you might have a David just watching some sheep out in a paddock somewhere. We don't know where this person is, but you do, Lord. You've earmarked this person. And we pray in the beautiful name of Jesus that you would bring wisdom and discernment on the eldership of this church to bring this person home, to lead this flock, to lead with courage, with integrity, and to teach with the Word of God so that we would not be unknowing. We would know who we are and whom we serve. Do these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How about we stand? Let's respond to God's Word in worship. This is not a